move us forward in the harmony of the Gospels this morning, and I want to talk about religious traditions. Is this text, well, the texts, plural here, uh, really hone in on this issue. Uh, this is an unknown author. I found this quote. I couldn't, found, I couldn't find who it was attributed to, but the quote says this, to those who would argue that tradition can kill a church, just understand that the second time you do anything for somebody in the church, it becomes a tradition. For somebody. Oh, yeah, we did that last year. Oh, we're doing that again? That's a, that's a forever thing now, right? For somebody, it becomes a tradition. The etymology of that word, tradition, derives from the Latin traditore, which is where we get the, the words trader, somebody who would go uh, trade goods, uh, we get the word tradition, and we get the word traitor, a person who would betray you, all from that same Latin root. And in turn, these derive from the earlier Greek language, a verb paradidomai, which means to hand over or to, to hand something down to someone, and, and, and paradosis, which means a collection of doctrines or traditions. And so the, the, the fight... This, this battle between Scripture and tradition uh, has raged down through the centuries. We've seen it in our studies in recent weeks. We just looked at how the Roman Catholic Church places tradition at odds with the Word of God. But Protestantism, pro- Protestantism, oh, I'm not having, there it is, Abby, where were you? Yeah, I did it, I did it. Yeah, okay. She's been calling me out on this thing I do that at, so. That's, there's one. Go ahead. Just mark it down. Um, tr- so, where, hold on. Where's, where am I in my notes now? Um, the, so this idea of Protestantism, uh, we, we're protesting, right? The, the Catholic Church had all these rules, regulations, and, they, and we've talked about that. And then, and then the Reformation came into play and said, no, we're going to protest against the way you do church and your theology. And so we got labeled Protestants. And so... Um, Protestantism is fractured now today in many different traditions as well, and much of that rooted in theological disagreements and then in like secondary squabbles over things. Uh, theologian J.I. Packer says this. He says, the question then is not whether we have traditions, but whether our traditions conflict with the only absolute standard on these matters, the Holy Scriptures. This is not, it's not a question of whether or not we have traditions. We have traditions. I mean, Emmaus Road is only six, you know, almost six years old, and we have traditions already, right? Um, but it's, it's whether those traditions come into conflict with what God's Word says. And, and, and Packer's right. That is the question. That is the issue. Do our traditions supersede, take authority over the Word of God? The prophet Isaiah issued a warning regarding this idea of elevating tradition above the word of God. And we do well to heed what he said in Isaiah 29, 13. It says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, their hearts are far from me. God says there's a point at which you've, you've elevated tradition so much and you've Diminish the word inadvertently, maybe not intentionally, but it's just a natural byproduct. That the, the things coming out of your mouth, the praise that you're giving unto God with your lips, becomes simply lip service, because we're ignoring what He's said to us. 
These worshipers, God is describing, weren't elevating the worship of God. They weren't elevating the word of God. They're elevating their best thoughts about God. And that's a dangerous thing to do. The God who breathed out the stars, the God who formed every one of us in the womb, is the same God who desires wholehearted worship and wholehearted devotion from us. And he alone has the power to shape us and mold us and to make us into his image and to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. That, that, by the way, just in case you didn't know this, that's the goal of the Christian life. It's not to get smarter. Although I think that's a byproduct of following Jesus. You will become more wise, but that's not the goal. The goal is to become like Jesus Christ, to be more like him every day, but that can never be a product of what is outward only. It has to be a heart issue. It has to be what God's doing in us. It's a function of what's inward, what's, what he's working inside us. And then that works its way out in full demonstration of what Christ is doing in every one of us. He wants a genuine, regenerated heart. He wants genuine worship. Pastor Ray Stedman put it this way. I found this quote this week. Ray says, Christian activity never never stems from an imperative of divine command. It, it, it comes from an impulse of the indwelling presence. Yes, God said, go and, and tell people the gospel, but that's not what motivates the Christian heart to do it. It's, it's, the, it's the Holy Spirit in us, working in us, saying, go. Oh, that guy over there, he's, he's desperate for an answer for the hope like, that's within us. He sees the hope. Tell him what the hope is. That's all internal. That's, that's the Holy Spirit through the Word of God and, and in us, working in us. To, to, we would be obedient and we'd be telling the gospel to others. So let's, um, let's go to the texts this morning because I want us to see this, this play out in real time. So Matthew 15, we'll start with Matthew's gospel. Matthew 15, 1 to 20, and I'll just read the text to you. And then we'll go to Mark's gospel because they're parallel. Mark 15, 1 to 20 says this. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And all the moms said, Yeah. And Jesus answered, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. And he called all the people to himself, and he said to them, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, it's what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, did you know that the Pharisees were, were offended when they heard the saying? And he said, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted, he's going to root up. So let him alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they're, gonna, they're both going to fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, so, so explain that parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But whatever comes out of the mouth 
proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Okay, so let's, let's go on to Mark. Mark 7, 1 to 23. And we'll stop and have some, some commentary here along the way. Mark 7, verse 1. Again, same incident. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding the, the, to the holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So these scribes and Pharisees had come from Jerusalem. They're not the local religious leaders based in Galilee, where they currently are. They've come from headquarters in Jerusalem, the epicenter of all Jewish religious affairs. It, it kind of makes you wonder why they had taken the trouble to come 68.3 miles to Galilee. I think we could safely rule out the notion they came to desire to learn from Jesus or to acknowledge him as Messiah. I think we could just check that one off. They came to find fault with Jesus and his disciples. They were seeking an opportunity to convince the Jewish people that this was a deviant sect uh, that ought to be ignored and ostracized. The local Pharisees and religious leaders had tried, but every time they did, Jesus just healed somebody or he'd cast out a demon or raised the dead. There, there was no way to overcome his popularity with the people. Jesus is popular with the people, and that's the threat to the religious establishment. So, so here they are. They've come all the way from Jerusalem. And in Matthew 15, 2, there's mention of the, the tradition of the elders, right? That's worth exploring for a moment. There were, uh, I don't know if you know this, there were a collection of teachings of the Jewish rabbis, all of it based on their own interpretations and applications of God's law. All of these traditions were passed down orally to the Jewish people until about 200 A.D. when they were finally compiled together and written down in a single volume called the Mishnah. So, so you, can, you can find copies of the Mishnah even today. The Mishnah included prayers and blessings for use on different occasions and, and very detailed specific rules of conduct and bodily purification, all these things that you, you won't find in the Scriptures. But they were applications and, and deduced from, from Scripture, right? So on, on one, entire, one entire section of the mission, it deals with the washing of hands. It specifies the various blessings that must be recited during the washing and how much water must be used for effective ceremonial purification. Here's, here's an example I'll read to you from the Mishnah. If a man poured water over one hand with a single rinsing, his, his hand is clean. But if over both hands with a single rinsing, 
single quantity of water, then they are unclean unless he pours over them a quart or more of water. So if you only... You only do one hand, it's cool, but if you, if you use the same amount, amount of water for both hands, you're unclean and you're sinning if you eat in, in that capacity. You, you can see how specific the mission gets. The Jews were required by this tradition to wash their hands before they eat, after they ate, and also between courses of food. So if you've got a multi-course meal, everybody pushes pause and goes and washes again and then comes back for the next course. And I don't know about you, but that's aggravating. I just want to eat. Just put the food in front of me and let me eat. Right? But as a result, each household had a store of quite a lot of water for these and other washing rituals. And that would explain, I don't know if you're thinking about this right now, but it would explain why the house in Galilee where Jesus turned the water into wine had six large stone water pots, each one holding about 100 liters. This was a, every, you had to keep the water going, right? And so, uh, again, these are, these are extrapolations from God's Word that made life very difficult for God's people. These were applications of the law of Moses, not the law of Moses itself, not the Word of God itself. They have been developed by these scribes, these Jewish scribes, down through the years. And over time, all of these extrapolations had slowly been elevated in the minds of the Jewish people to be on par with God's actual law and his word that he had spoken to them. And if you, and if you, right now you're thinking, oh man, that's so dumb. We do that too. We have that tendency too. Verse 6, And he said to them, Jesus speaking, Why did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus is just leveling these guys. He's going straight for the issue. And these high-powered scribes and Pharisees had been dispatched from Jerusalem. Uh, They came ready to point out all the faults of Jesus and his disciples. And what happened? Well, Well, it turns out their own faults and sins are being exposed for all to see. Right? And, and, and the awful truth about them was being broadcast to the crowds. Jesus showed them up to be true lawbreakers and hypocrites and sinners. Now, naturally, the scribes and Pharisees were extremely offended by this. But they couldn't answer him. They couldn't refute a single thing that he said about them. And this is because the Lord Jesus spoke the truth about them, and he came in the authority of God. So let's make this personal. Let's, let's make this personal. Outward forms... Outward forms are things that are not prescribed in the Bible, but may be useful to help us apply what is taught in the Scriptures. Right? We're not saying all traditions are evil. We're saying some of them are helpful. For example, when we pray, we, we usually close our eyes and put our hands together or fold our hands in our lap and we, and we bow our heads, right? You won't find that prescribed in the Bible. Did you know that? It's not a bad thing to do. But it's okay sometimes if you pray with your eyes open. You, you're not going to get struck down. It's okay if you pray standing up instead of kneeling beside your bed. You're not going to get struck down. Right? God wants the communication. He wants the interaction. He's not so worried about the posture that you're taking. 
But see, this is what was happening. That like the, the, the traditions were being elevated so high, right? And, and so this is the very definition of hypocrisy. When we elevate our traditions and the forms that have been helpful to us, we put them up on the same level with the Word of God. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Uh, it, it's, it, there are things that we learn from following the examples of other Christians. But when it comes to our relationship with God, you know, for us, and, and especially for the Jews in this passage, it's easy to adopt hypocrisy without even realizing that we're doing it. And so they, they were honoring God with their lips by what they were saying, but not with the way that they were living. And that's a disconnect, I think, for a lot of people, right? And it's easy to, I, 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 I want you to know, there have been times when other people come along and said, Sadie, did you know that there's this disconnect in your life here? And, and I was totally blind to it. This is part of what the body does. We come alongside each other and say, hey, I don't know if you're seeing this thing, but I just wanted, you know, the Holy Spirit prompted me to tell you, right? And that's a, that's a really good thing. That's a really good thing when we do that for each other and we do it in love. But this, uh, obviously, the, the, what's happening here is Jesus loves the Pharisees and he's trying to correct them, but they're not really all that interested in being corrected. They had set aside the actual commandments of God in order to focus on the minutia of the application of the law, and they did not consult God's word directly. Now, I, I spent some time uh, looking for examples of this in church history, and I read an article this week that reported, I thought this was really funny, uh, John Calvin would wear a hat to church and preach with it on. Now, I grew up Southern Baptist. You did not walk in the doors of a church with a hat on. Now, you would burst into flames if you entered a Baptist church with your hat on. Okay? It was a big deal. It was disrespectful to wear a hat in church. Now, Calvin wore this hat, and he only removed it to pray. So now get this. John Calvin preaching with a hat on. Preaching with a hat on. I don't know. Like, that may not mean anything to you, but having grown up Southern Baptist, like, I have a hard time just saying it. I have a hard time saying it. All right. So for, for, as a result, but as a result of Calvin preaching with a hat on, it, for several hundred years after that, men would wear hats to church and only remove them for prayer because they believed it was a godly thing to do. But nobody knew the reason why John Calvin wore a hat to preach. Let me tell you the reason. His church building in Strasbourg was open, right, and cold. It was made out of stone, and birds flew in, and they roosted in the parts of the... And he wore a hat because he didn't want to get bird poop on his head while he was preaching, for real. He wore a hat to guard against the birds pooping on his head while he's preaching in the pulpit. And yet here's, for hundreds of years afterwards, here are people wearing their hats because, oh, no, that's the, that's the godly thing to do. No, it was, just a, it was just like I'm trying to avoid having a bird poop on me while I'm preaching. But this is how these things develop, right? So <laughs> religious traditions have this sneaky way of doing that, of, of being elevated to the, to the level of Scripture, to the level of God's commandments, right? Tra- but tradition, so let's talk about what tradition is. Tradition is, here's the definition, the transmission of customs or beliefs. So tradition is not inherently evil or wrong. 
But when it's, again, when it's elevated to the level of God's word, that's when we have a problem. It, it's simply, tradition is simply something that's passed down from one generation to another. But a religious tradition is, uh, well, it's the transmission of a religious custom or belief from generation to generation, usually believed or being elevated to, to have divine authority, even though it's not found in the scriptures. Religious traditions are not always bad. I want to say this again. They're not always unhealthy. But when they get elevated to that place, that's where we have a problem. So observing the Lord's Supper throughout the year is a good tradition. Like here at ER, we've taken to doing that every other week. But Lord, help us if we ever adopted a bylaw that says only Jesus-loving, God-honoring Christians take communion twice a month, and anyone who does it less than that is not holy and not saved. Right? Like if we took what we do, our observance, and we put it up on a put it up high with the Bible and said, anybody who doesn't do this or observe this is not a Christian. Now, now we've got a problem. We've got a problem. So like celebrating the birth of Jesus at Christmas and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus at Easter. You realize those are both traditions. Those are traditions. We don't know Jesus' actual birthday. And, and we know that they didn't call the crucifixion Easter. That, that word, that's a whole other story. We'll talk about that in a couple of months, okay? But th- this is what I'm talking about, right? This is what I'm talking about. We, 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 we raise these things up. Uh, the kind of religious tradition that causes problems is the kind of religious tradition that Jesus confronts in this passage. This is the worst ones, right? When traditions are taught as if they have divine authority from God, that's dangerous. I'll give you, I just want to give you another example so that you're getting this in your mind. Um, and it's one that I, have, uh, I haven't encountered much since I was in campus ministry at the University of Georgia. Go dogs, national champs. <coughs> or, um, yeah. Uh, uh, there's another tradition of hyping my team in the middle of my sermon, too. I don't know if you've caught on to that tradition, but uh, there are some believers who firmly believe that there is only one authorized translation of the Bible in English and only one that God approves of, and that's the King James Bible. That's a tradition. And for, for, for guys who are KJV only, it's not just a tradition. It's on par with God's Word. It's like if you read any other version of the Bible in English, you are sinning. You are not reading God's word. And it's like, no, not. But you see where, did you see how we can get there? Do you see how people get there? And so the, the King James is a great translation. But, you know, problems occur when the tradition of KJV onlyism is passed on from generation to generation as if the King James Version of the Bible has more divine authority than other traditions. The Bible doesn't say anything about translations. There, there are good translations. There are bad translations. So choose wisely. And if, and if, and if you're needing help on picking a Bible, um, you know there are some good ones out there and some really bad ones, and I'm happy to help you with that. But, but don't, you know, we can't raise our translation to the point of saying, this one's the Word of God, the, the NIV... Not the TNIV, but the NIV is God's word and everything. You know, it's just like, that's just crazy. That's, that's, that's when we get into trouble. And, and so our problem is that religious traditions in Christianity usually start 
from the Word of God. They're tied to the Word of God in some way, but quickly move away from that and then establish themselves as something else. So someone will see a truth or a principle in the Bible and then give it some point of application. And there's nothing wrong with that. Usually it's a good point of application. But then that application takes on a life of its own and eventually becomes a tradition. And then that tradition eventually becomes equal to or greater than God's word. And everyone has encountered these if you've been in the church for more than five minutes, right? Uh, I'll give you some, again, from my childhood growing up. And this is some of that I heard my grandparents talk about. You can't play cards. Boy, if 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 you're a good church going person and you find out you've been playing cards, you might get excommunicated. I mean, like, pff, who, who decided that? Women shouldn't wear makeup to church. That's a big deal. That was a big deal in some churches. I don't know if it still is. I've never worn makeup to church, so I don't know. Um, and some of you are going, thank you. Uh, Christians shouldn't go to movies. What are they going to do with the church that meets in the theater? We're in, we're in deep trouble right now. I'm um, Always wear your Sunday best to church. I grew up in a church like that. Always wear your Sunday best. I, I ripped so many pairs of slacks, sliding in on the baseball diamond in the field next to the church after church. I can't even tell you. I wore my Sunday best, and I ruined my Sunday best. The, the application of biblical truth slowly transforms in, in, in people's minds into a religious tradition that that rises up to be on par with God's word. And we have to be wary of that. And so back to the text here in verse 9, Jesus said to them, to the, to the Pharisees and the scribes, he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Ooh. Come on, Jesus. For Moses said, and you guys venerate Moses, don't you, scribes? Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and, here's another one, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die, according to the law of Moses. But you say, well, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, and thus make void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. So let me unpack that. Jesus gives them an example that deals with honoring their parents. Going back to Exodus 20, 12, where the Bible tells us to honor your father and mother. And then just five verses later, God is speaking the law to Moses, right? And he's elaborating just a little bit here. And in Exodus 21, 17, the Bible says, anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. Kids, you listen? It's a big deal to God, right? Um, There are plenty. those Those are pretty clear commands in Scripture. The first one comes out of the Ten Commandments. The second one was one of the national laws of Israel. Uh, which demonstrated the seriousness of obeying God's commands as his chosen people. But the Pharisees had this tradition known as Corban. A gift that was Corban was dedicated to God in the temple by an irrevocable vow. It was then put under a type of a ban. You couldn't touch it. So it couldn't be used for any other purpose at all except for the temple, except for the for God. So... Um, 
Now, despite that being the case, Jews could make payments as they were able to, since they still, you know, still had to feed their families. They couldn't just give all their money to the temple and then be destitute, but they, they could make payments on what was Corban and uh, still f- feed their families. But, but now imagine this. Imagine a family, and all the kids are grown up, and they've moved on out of the house, and those aging parents need assistance. Mom and dad come to the, to the adult kids and say, Son, can you help us financially? We've gotten older. We can no longer work. And remember, this is an agrarian society, right? And, and so we, we can't, we've gotten older. We can no longer work. Can you help us with our living expenses? And the son would say, sorry, mom and dad. All my money is devoted to the temple. Now, this sounded spiritual. And it appeared to reflect a deep devotion to God. But really, it was just driven by greed for most people. And the thing that, w- that would have been more honoring to God would have been to obey his commandments and take care of your aging parents. So the Pharisees, who had access to the temple treasuries, were allowing people to put lots of monetary gifts under the label Corban as a way of getting out of their responsibility to their aging parents. And, and when those aged parents came to their family, to the religious leaders for support, they were told, wow, you know, those resources are already pledged as a gift in its Corbin, so you can't touch it. So on paper, the adult kids didn't have the means to support their aging parents. But later, after their parents died, they could use tradition to redeem back all that money from the temple. That's kind of schmarmy, kind of slimy. And here's an example where a tradition was a direct contradiction to the scriptures. And yet the Pharisees are going along with tradition instead of God's word. And so just a footnote on this topic. God has commanded us to honor our parents, and and we we are to do this by obeying them when we're young and honoring them when they're old. And, And we do this by providing for their needs when they're aged, if they have trouble and they need help. We're told in 1 Timothy 5.8 that anyone who does not provide for his relatives, not just his kids, his relatives, and especially the members of his own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's just super clear. We continue on with Mark 7, verse 14. And so he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside a person. Now we're back to the cleanness, cleanness issue, right? And, and this whole, whole idea of being defiled by what comes into us. And he's just used this example of how they defile themselves by, by being, you know, duplicitous. And so then he says this. He, call, he calls all the people. He says, hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But it's the things that come out of a person that defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples came to him about the parable, and he said to them, Are you guys without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person um, from the outside can, cannot defile him? Since it enters not into his heart, it enters into the stomach and is expelled. And thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. Let me give you the examples. Here's the list. For within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and that's what defiles a person. 
And so, so Jesus wraps up this conversation with a very succinct statement on defiling. See, the Pharisees were myopic. I don't know if you know what that word means. Myopic means seeing small things up close while not being able to see big things clearly. For me, that's like walking around all day with my reading glasses on. Can you imagine? Like, I, I, yes, I have reached the all-important stage of life where I need reading glasses. And, and I have some really nice big thick ones too. And it's so great because I can just see, like I can see my iPad right now, but if I get right here, it's blurry. And, and so it makes, the, it makes everything real big, and I love those. But if I wore those all day walking around, I'd be tripping over stuff and falling down. That's, that's like the, the concept of myopia, right? The, the Jewish religious establish, establishment had a strong tendency to major on the minors. When I wear those reading glasses, I can see the little things on the page that I couldn't see before. But boy, if I look up, it makes me dizzy and everything's blurry. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is telling us that food is not what defiles a person. Unwashed hands are not what defile a person. It's just food. It's nourishment if it's healthy food, if you're not eating McDonald's every day. Um, and, then, and then that waste leaves our body. It leaves us. And the food that we take into our bodies is processed for nutrition. It has no impact on our spiritual life. It has no impact on our relationship with Jesus. The process of digestion has nothing to do with our soul in relationship to God. Paul makes this point very clear when he deals with food sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians. To the contrary, Jesus says here, it's not what goes in that defiles a person. It's what's coming out. It's our thoughts translated into speech. It's our actions, the way that we live our lives. That's what defiles us. And so, this is what we'll see in the church. If you haven't seen this, if you've been in the church for more than five minutes and you haven't seen this, you will. You will see people who talk a big game about Jesus who don't live a big game about Jesus. And those are the people that I love the most because I want to come alongside them. And I want to just, just a little knuckle in the rib cage and just say, and then wrap them up, you know. I love you. Let's talk about this. Let me help you. This is discipleship. You know what it really is, for the most part, when that happens, when you've got people in the church life, it's a lack of discipleship. We've got to be intentional about discipling people who come to Christ. And Jesus is kind enough to help us out here by giving us some pretty comprehensive list of these things that he's warning us about. He gives us a really comprehensive list, and it's there in the text for you. But just think about that question. What is it that defiles a person? What defiles a person? I mean, we would all do well to think on that because we're not above that. Satan tempts us every day. And when we give into that, we're defiled in some way. And we need to repent and go back and let the Lord cleanse us in his word. But it's a question we need to think about, right? And often. I mean, do you struggle with evil thoughts or lust or immorality? Because all of those can defile a person. Have you ever stolen something? Taken something that didn't belong to you regardless of its value? Did you know that that makes you a thief? Have you ever seen something that belonged to someone else and coveted that thing, wanting it for yourself, even if it meant that they couldn't keep it? That's called covetousness. Most of us aren't willing to look into our hearts at that level to assess our own sins. How many lies would you estimate that you've told over the course of your life? <laughs> How many lies would you say you told last week? 
If you say none, you're adding to the count. Have, have you ever looked at a person to lust after them? Jesus says you've committed adultery already in your heart. His standard is so much higher than our standard of morality. If, if what I've just shared with you this morning, just the last minute, has you sweating bullets and, and looking over your shoulder in fear, that's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God's telling you that you need to get right with him. And the only way to do that is to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it's just funny to me. We've got these two parallel passages. You've got Matthew and Mark. And then there's one verse in John that's part of this segment in the harmony. John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, he's going to let that happen, but it's going to be on his timetable. Jesus is essentially saying to the religious establishment, all this that we just read, if, you, if you're sexually immoral or deceitful or wicked, you've got much bigger problems than whether or not you keep kosher dietary restrictions. You've got bigger problems than whether or not you wash your hands with the prescribed amount of water when you eat a meal. You guys are so focused on the minutia of the details of the application of your traditions, you're ignoring the law of God. You're ignoring what is good and right and what God has commanded us. And that's the very definition of hypocrisy. They cared more about the, how things appeared to other people than they cared about God's perception about those things. And I just, want, I just want us to hear it again. We are prone to that. We are not uh, immune to it. We need to be aware of the same, th- same kinds of things creeping into our hearts. We get really judgmental about different groups of people or, or a person or things that are happening. It's not to say that we can't make a right judgment. In fact, Jesus tells us in John 7, 24, make a right judgment. But man, when we wield that, when we, when we hang it over people, we just, we've just got to be careful. We've got to be careful. We're saved by grace, not saved by works. I don't have anything to go around with my chest puffed out about. We're saved by grace. And as we wrap this up, I just want to clarify and establish three axiomatic truths about traditions when it comes to the Christian faith. I hope this will help you, give you handholds or maybe uh, some, some guardrails for your Christian walk. Um, the number, number one here for me is religious traditions do not necessarily demonstrate spiritual maturity. I think there is an assumption. It's like, oh, man, that's, those people are steeped in tradition. They must be very mature Christians. Not always. And we need to work to keep this in mind, especially whenever we utilize any outward form that's not expressly prescribed by God in his word. Nothing that man might elevate as a practice or outward expression of our faith can ever, ever rise to the level of what God has already expressly said in the Bible. No, no practice, nothing that we have, you know, man, I was just thinking this week, if I just did this on Sunday mornings, man, I would be closer to God. Well, that's, that's never, never going to rise to the level of God's word and what he said to do. My best thoughts about God are never going to get there, right? So, um, yeah, in fact, while some 
who adopt the comfort of religious traditions find it helpful in some ways, the thing itself eventually hinders the person's spiritual development if they're, they're hanging their, their hope on the tradition, on the practice of some tradition. Let me give you an example. Um, imagine a child who found a pair of crutches when, he, when they were, you know, preteen and just loved the crutches. Now, this, this happened in my house. We, I don't know how we got a pair of crutches, but my sister and I would fight over who got to play with the crutches, right? But imagine that that, that child found a pair of crutches and just loved using the crutches and, and went on to use the crutches every day, all through elementary school, all through middle school, and all through high school, despite the fact that his legs were perfectly fine. His arms and shoulders at graduation were quite strong, but his legs were underdeveloped and lacking in muscle. So the use of the crutches is my example uh, of how we adopt traditions when they're unnecessary. You get to graduation, and, and, and from, from your rib cage up, you look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. But from the waist down, you look like a chicken. You know, chicken legs. Right? It didn't help. It didn't help. Because it's not the Word of God. It might have helped in some way for a, for a brief season, but it wasn't something you needed to adopt. It's not something on par with Scripture. Toss the crutches and learn to walk with Jesus. Right? No outward form has the authority of a commandment of God, so pray with your eyes open if you want to. <gasps> we can do that? Yeah, you can. You can. And, and also, keeping traditions does not have any value in, beer, in, in building spiritual vitality, right? Um, so you won't go to hell for not saying grace before your afternoon snack. Um, sing the worship lyrics on the screen or... If you prefer, gather some friends for an evening of singing hymns. Ooh, worship songs or hymns. There's a fight in the church today. Yeah, oh, that's okay. That's okay. We, we can act, you know what we can do? We can blend. We can blend it. And, oh, my goodness. Instead, we need to be concerned about our inward obedience to Christ's commands, okay? Religious traditions do not necessarily demonstrate spiritual maturity. Here's number two. Religious traditions can lead to hypocrisy. A number of different things might pop into your head when you hear the word hypocrite. It could be a politician caught in a scandal, maybe a religious leader doing something indecent. But, but what does the word mean? What is a hypocrite? It may surprise you to learn that the, the Greek word hypocrite is the word for actor. It's an actor. An actor is one who puts on a character or another persona, usually for the sake of entertainment. But when that happens in the church, <laughs> it's not very entertaining, I can tell you. And after 25 years of full-time Christian ministry, I have seen my fair share of hypocrites. And I was one for a while. When it comes to play actors in the church, their words communicate one message, their lives tell another story. Our worship of God is only meaningful when there's genuine, genuine inward devotion to God. Okay, let me say that again. Our outward worship, when we gather here on Sunday morning to sing, sit under the teaching of the Word, all of our outward worship of God is only meaningful if there's genuine inward devotion to God. Otherwise, it's just hypocrisy. It's play acting. 
Inward devotion to God is the very heart and soul of true religion. So make sure that your love and devotion and obedience to Jesus is genuine, not hypocritical. So we said religious traditions do not necessarily demonstrate spiritual maturity. Religious traditions can lead to hypocrisy. And here's my final point this morning. Religious traditions can lead to a rejection of God's word. Many people who claim to be Christians all over the world are steeped in traditions that are either quasi-biblical or simply unbiblical altogether. I mean, the past two weeks, we've talked about both the Roman Catholic Church and also the Mormons in the context of John 6. And there are so many more examples of religious traditions that the, the more beyond those two systems that I just mentioned, more than we can count. But instead of listing them all out and saying, avoid this, avoid that, avoid this, I would say, no, just read God's word. You know, when, when, when they hire a new bank teller at the bank, they don't teach them how to spot all the counterfeits. You know what they do? They give them an intensive on what actual money feels like, smells like, and, and looks like. Because once you've got the real thing and you know what it is, you can spot the fake really fast. You don't need to go home this week and study all the cults. That's not a bad thing to do. It's not necessary. The more you're in God's Word, and many of us are doing that every day this year, every day we're in God's Word together. The more you're in God's Word, the more you spot the counterfeits. It's just intuitive. It's, It's natural. Because the Word of God gets in us, and it trains us, and it builds us up. We need to immerse ourselves in God's Word. Colossians 2, 8 to 10 says this. Paul writes, See to it that nobody takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Because in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule over all authority. There's not an authority higher than Jesus Christ. He is the head and rule of all authority. Will you cling to your religious traditions or will you cling to the old rugged cross? Will you embrace man's best thoughts about God or will you stand on the promises of God's word? Will you seek and receive and revel in the applause and acceptance of people or will you defer to him who would tell you on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be of those who stand before you and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Lord, so to that end, we say to you in this moment, if there's anything you need to do in us, say to us, if there's any ways in which you need to redirect our lives, Make us aware of something that we, we haven't seen that's a danger to our spiritual vitality. Lord, we would want that from you. We would, we would want you to speak to us. We would want you to warn us. Lord, we, we ask for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit this morning to, to, to invigorate us and move us forward in these days. Lord, would you give us a spirit that longs for and is eager for the sharing of the gospel that we would, we would be looking for opportunities to make you known to our neighbors and to the nations. And we thank you for all of your grace poured out on us.
and the opportunity to serve you and to be together as your body. We rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Traditions start out mostly good, and then they go bad, and then they get ugly. So our obedience and reverence is given to God and his word alone, not the traditions of men. The God who breathed out the stars and formed every one of us in the womb is the same God who desires our wholehearted worship and devotion. And he alone has the power to shape us and to mold us into his image, to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. That's the goal of this whole thing called the Christian life, to become more like Jesus every day. So feel free to engage in traditions, but only to the point that they don't overshadow the word of God in your life. Read and study your Bible daily. It is your spiritual food. It is your lifeline to God. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.